So thanks again, everybody, for joining us today for the Friday Gallery Talk. I'd like to introduce Evelyn Hankins, our associate curator. Come on in. Caroline said, my name is Evelyn Hankins. Do you want more of an introduction? No. Okay, my name is Evelyn Hankins. Um, I'm an associate curator here at the Hirshhorn, and um, Carolyn runs this wonderful program of Friday Gallery Talks. I'm not sure how many of you take advantage of these very often. Um, it's an opportunity for curators, other staff members of the museum, and people outside of your traditional um, museum community or necessarily museum staff to talk about works in the collection. Um, and I have to say, well, it's, it's work for us. It's also a great opportunity to actually get in front of a painting. Um, spend a lot of time at my computer. One of my jobs here at the Hirshhorn is I'm responsible for this outer ring of permanent collection galleries, which we roughly call the painting galleries. So we're trying to um, bring more sculptures into, the, into these galleries. Um, and when I was asked if I would do a gallery talk this fall, the first thing I said to myself, I'm going to say, oh, the Gerhard Richter Sanctuary. This is um, one of, what I believe one of really great paintings in the Hirshhorn's collection. And I said, this is the one I'm going to talk about because I had just put it on view. And the interesting thing is a few months went by and last week I said, oh, I have to think about my gallery talk. And I came down here and I stood in front of this painting for about an hour and I realized I didn't have very much to say. So um, <laughs> it's, it's, what I think is interesting about that is Richter, and I hate to start, start this with an artist quote, but Richter is actually one of the more articulate artists, I think. He said in the 1960s, and he repeats himself over and over again. Um, he's very consistent. He says, talking about painting, there is no point. By conveying a thing through the medium of language, you change it. You construct qualities that can be said, and you leave out the ones that can't be said, but they are always the most important. Now, Richter, of course, is not the first artist to talk about the impossibility of talking about visual things in, in language. But I think what's so fascinating is the fact that I was, in fact, speechless, and I have a very hard time talking about this painting, and my field is modern paintings, um, so I should be really feel very comfortable in front of this painting. So I thought a little bit of this talk would be about what it means to talk about a painting. And to me, when I stand in front of this painting, the first word that comes to mind, it comes to mind repeatedly, is the word ravishing, in the sense that you are overwhelmed with kind of sensual information. On one hand, it's entrancing, it's enticing, but at the same time, it's overwhelming and it's almost dangerous. Um, I don't know how much you know about Gerhard Richter. I'll give you a little background on him. Some would argue that he is perhaps one of the most important painters uh, since World War II in, in, in Western world of Europe and America. He was born in 1931 in Dresden, and he was raised primarily in rural Poland. In 1962, he defected to Dusseldorf and left East Germany and never to return until, I think, the 1990s. And he went to Dusseldorf to study at the Art Academy, and he went there at a very important time, because at that time, Joseph Beuys was there, and he was one of this, he was this artist who was extremely influential on, I'd say, almost the entire continent in the 1960s, in bringing Fluxus, Neo-Dada, um, and other kind of avant-garde performative um, art movements to these students. And Richter was also there at a, at a very important time, because he met two very important three very important people, Sigmar Polka, who's another one of the great painters, um, Blinky Palermo, um, a painter who we showed here last year, and then Conrad Lloyd, who would become Conrad Fischer, probably one of the most influential German dealers over time. And so when Richter was in um, Dusseldorf in the 1960s, for the first time he was really exposed to an array of avant-garde um, art practices. Before he had come to East Germany, he really even had, had much exposure to abstract expressionism, which by the 1960s was almost retarded terror. And so he started making several bodies of um, paintings in the 1960s. The first was a set of black and white photorealist paintings based on photographs. He literally 
would find photographs, banal, important, significant, personal, taken out of the paper, this incredible range of photographs, which would become this archive later on, um, of photographs. And they were very photorealist. He would project them onto the canvas and, and paint over them. He also started creating color charts, which are these really beautiful, you've probably seen very large scale um, paintings with little swatches of color. And what they were really were just copies of the color charts or the, the, the painting charts that he would get or the painting swatches he would get at the art store. At the same time, he started a body of work of gray paintings. He was interested in, the, in the, what could be the potential or the, the kind of infinite potential in a single color. And during the 1960s, he and Polka, for the most part, were because of their interest in pop art, really um, became associated with this idea of capitalist realism, which was this sort of German um, variation on, on pop art using everyday found imagery, um, uh, subject matter that wouldn't normally be considered traditional subject matter. By 1970, he had um, created this archive of found photographs, and it became what became known as Atlas. And to this day, Atlas is a really important um, set of source material for Richter. Uh, he goes back to it all the time. He's constantly adding images. Like I said, some of them are found photographs. Some of them are personal photographs. Some of them are highly charged sociopolitical photographs with a very significant, um, with quite a bit of historical significance. Others are photographs of his children, you know, just totally banal, or, or photographs that you wouldn't really think as representing um, uh, important uh, painting sources. 1972, he moved from this idea of photorealism and began making paintings based on fragments of paintings that no longer existed. What he would do is he would take one of these photorealist paintings that he had created, take a photograph of a fragment of it, and then blow it up. And what he realized making these photographs is that he was actually much more interested in what he called the interstitial areas of the paintings than the subject matter himself. So in the 1970s, he started oscillating back and forth, and it's, it's stayed pretty consistent since then. I mean, it's been more than 30 years, or almost probably 40 years, where he oscillates back and forth between photorealist painting and abstraction. And I think for that reason, Richter is, is, is interesting because he really kind of backed into abstraction and abstract painting. When you think about people who are making abstract paintings in the 60s and 70s and 80s particularly, you think about people like Bryce Martin, Robert Ryman. These are people who felt very strongly that abstraction was the only way you could paint. You know, you were, during those decades, you were either making abstract paintings or you were making realist paintings. You were not making anything in between. It was, it was a highly charged dialogue between artists that long had been about what kind of art you were making. And for Richter, he was just really interested in vision and the possibilities of painting. And I think what's so fascinating is he committed himself to painting at a time starting in the 1960s when everyone was saying that painting's possibilities had been totally exhausted. They had moved on to other media, performance, sculpture, you know, um, time-based media, film. There was all these other things. And, and basically, people were saying that, that painting was dead. And I think Richter took it on somewhat as a challenge to, to think about what were the actual possibilities of painting. So this is a painting called Sanctuary from 1988. It's from a series of paintings, uh, I think it's 12 paintings, that actually have titles on them. They're all titled for London. Um, Richter, for the most part, if you look at his paintings, um, his abstract paintings, he titles them abstract picture or abstracta bilda in German. And um, I almost hesitate to bring the title up because what, even though he talks about this series of paintings as having some kind of relationship to his time in London and they're named after places in London, the Tower of London, Sanctuary, um, 
uh, and, and other different chapels in London. I don't want you in any way to think about this as being representative of London. I, I haven't exactly been able to figure out why this body is titled. They're really, I mean, Richter, like most artists, is pretty elusive when, when asked some of these questions. But I do think it's interesting that this body of work actually is titled. Um, they were made at a very important point. In the 1980s, I think, people would argue that these abstractions really became much stronger. In the late 70s, he moved away from making um, paintings that were recreations of fragments of his own paintings, and he moved on to make these extraordinary abstractions that combined a really kind of infinite variety of gestures and colors. Um, some of the paintings from the early 1980s had very hard-edged abstraction combined with very gestural painting, and it was always this extraordinary combination of colors. 1988 is actually a very important year for Richter because it was that year he made this body of abstractions, and I would argue that the, the 87, 88 are probably some of his best abstractions, right before he started what is perhaps his most significant series of work, which is a series of um, paintings based on the Bonner-Meinhof uh, revolutionaries in Germany. If you ever go to MoMA, you'll see them. It's this extraordinary photorealist series of paintings um, based on found photography of this series of German revolutionaries who eventually were all found dead in their cells in Germany. And, you know, of course, the officials said they were, they were suicides, and, but all of their circumstances of their death were very mysterious. So I find it fascinating that one could argue that some of Richter's most extraordinary and probably most important abstract paintings were made right before he made this really extraordinary body of, of realist painting. And I really think there are very few artists who can make such good paintings that are both of both styles or both modes. So looking at the painting, um, I think one of the things about these abstract paintings that's so important is the process. And I will admit, and I highly recommend, if any of you have any interest in Gerhard Richter, there was a great documentary made a couple years ago called Gerhard Richter Painting. Um, it's available on Netflix and iTunes. Um, I stood in front of this painting last week, and I said, you know, I thought to myself, I said, I know basically how these paintings are made, but how, how exactly are they made? And when you look at them, it's so much about wondering, how did this surface get to look this way? So I highly recommend that you go watch Gerhard Richter Painting because you get to see how they're made. Um, and it's also just a fabulous documentary. It's a very jaded art historian. I, I don't really like very many documentaries about artists, but I think this is one of the ones that's really worth, worth watching because Richter's a really interesting character. So what's interesting about these paintings we'll talk about is how they're actually made. And, and you can move in a little bit. I'll trust you guys. But you have to kind of get close up to it. So what he does is he takes a surface, a canvas, he works in a variety of scales. Richter never seems limited. Some of his paintings are this big when they're abstractions, and sometimes they're even larger than this. This, I think, is the largest painting in the series. And what he does is he'll take a brush, most often, and layer on colors. There is no um, method to his madness, one might say. It's a variety of textures, a variety of colors. Of course, he's thinking about how they all fit together as he's putting them on, but he's using this brush to layer on the colors. And what's key about Richter's process is he always works wet on wet, um, a la prima, if you want to use the, the complex Italian art historical term. That means that his, he never lets the oil on the linen ever dry until the painting is done. So he's always able to rework in. If you look at that, I'll just, by comparison, that Mark Brochin, you see how encrusted that painting is? It's really thick. That's a combination of both working wet on wet and dry. In order to get that kind of encrustation, it's layer upon layer upon of layer that builds up as opposed to this, which never um, breaks down, which never dries up. So he'll brush it all on, and it's never made in one session. It's multiple sessions, and that's what's fascinating about looking at um, this documentary. And next, what he does is he'll use a squeegee um, as his tool. And what he does is sometimes he'll put paint on the squeegee, sometimes he won't. He'll take squeegees of different sizes, and what he literally does is he drags them across the surface. Um, 
it doesn't, it's not always a large squeezy, sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large, sometimes it's across like a large body of the painting, and sometimes it's a, a, only a part of the painting. So, and what's interesting about this squeegee is it, it, it's a loss of control, which is fascinating for Richard, who's clearly a kind of a control freak. His studio is immaculate, he never has any paint on him, the floor, there's no paint on them, it's, it's all about control. But he uses the squeegee precisely because he can't control it. As he moves it across the surface, it's gathering paint and it's placing paint. It's adding paint and it's subtracting paint continually. And even if he presses on it, there's a little bit of control, I suspect. Like he knows, you know, having done this now for 30 years, that if he presses really hard, he probably gets one effect. Or if he presses lightly, he gets another. But given that he does layer upon layer upon layer upon layer with all of these different colors, he has no idea really how the painting is going to be made. And so what you end up with is, is this really um, extraordinary surface. And as you can see here, so if you look closely, one of the things I tried to figure out is where is the bottom of the painting? Where is the, the level? And I would, I would guess, having not used any kind of conservation tools to look at this painting, is that here, right in here, you can see the original brushing because you get that sense because you can actually see the weave of the canvas. But what's amazing is from that moment on, you can never really tell about the space of the painting. It's constantly flipping and turning and moving. As you stand here, it looks like it might be above that, but then over here, it looks like it might be over there. So this, this sense of time, this sense of creation, there is no one moment of creation. The idea is that it's kind of constantly being made. It's constantly be, being changed. And Richter talks about how starting the painting is easy, but once you put one mark on the canvas, it gets incredibly difficult as you move on. And of course, the key is to know when to stop making the painting. So he uses the squeegee to get these effects. And that's how you get these kind of like glorious effects where you can imagine him moving the squeegee across the canvas. It was probably a squeegee this big, I would guess. And I don't know if he was moving it this way or that way. It might have even been larger. And at times, he's pressing hard and he's adding the bed pigment. And sometimes he's just sweeping it across because the bed pigment has exhausted itself. And then it just keeps on moving through, picking up pigment and adding pigment as it, um, and subtracting pigment as it moves along. But then, of course, it's, not, it's just not about the squeegee. It's not a shtick. I think Richter is never just about shticks. He then moves back in and works with um, decorator's brushes. And I think that's what you're getting some of these textures in here. It's not like the brush work has to be first and then the squeegee comes in. He moves in to see what kind of mark making he can, he can get over here with a brush. And then over here, you can see it looks like either a very thin brush. I was saying to someone today that maybe it's a finger. And then here, it looks like some kind of stylus or stick was used. Um, so you get this kind of scratch. And so ultimately, I'm going to have you move back again now. Um, you get this incredibly complex weave. I mean, when you look at this painting, it's extraordinary that it actually holds together. What I'm amazed at is that this painting actually holds together. To have brushwork, squeegee marks, scrapes, I mean, uh, a variety of different kinds of marks combined with what I would say is just an extraordinary number of different colors. I would really argue that probably Richter is one of the great colorists of the 20th and 21st century. To get this range of colors to actually come together, to have moments where you have this incredibly pure blue and this really brilliant red, and then you have these really muddy colors that are brushed on over there, a painting lot like this logically shouldn't work. And I'm sure that a lot of Richter's paintings go right in the trash. I have no doubt that a lot of them end up in the trash and that we're only seeing the really great ones. But the fact is, is that he creates this extraordinary kind of weave of textures. And what I think is most interesting when you look at this painting is you look at it first and it's kind of the gestalt, the oh my god, you're overwhelmed by kind of the enormity and the complexity of the, of the painting itself. But then you start focusing in on all those little different areas and there are these kind of flickering <laughs> colors and flickering spaces and you just kind of get lost in those. And that's one of the things I love about these paintings is that there's never 
there's always something new to discover. I've been down here a lot the last couple days with different people in the museum, and it's interesting to get their perspectives on the painting. And each time I'm down here, I find something new, and I've been looking at it. Um, one of the things I think that Richter is important for is his relationship to history. Um, a lot of painters have uh, very different attitudes about how they're going to approach history, how they're going to approach the people who, who came before them and really set the bar so high. Richter, I think, takes history straight on. Um, in terms of his abstractions, uh, he has no problem whatsoever using um, a palette. It's almost always bright. Very, very seldomly do you find muddy tones. You end up with some of these muddy tones, but they seem to be muddied through mixture. My understanding is that he doesn't really use a lot of kind of earthy, muddy tones. He takes on a palette from the early 20th century fauve artists like Matisse or Blamenck or Turin or uh, German expressionist painters who really used highly charged color, Kandinsky. Maybe even someone mid-century like Rothko, using color that has very um, charged connotations, spiritual connotations, um, emotional connotations. But in Richter's hand, those colors seem to kind of be drained of that kind of emotional, spiritual significance. It's almost color for color's sake. And then in terms of his gesture, um, his use of the squeegee clearly, I think, is a, a knock against gestural abstraction. It's not your traditional gesture. When you think of the abstract expressionists, you know, Jackson Pollock straight, you know, throwing paint onto the canvas. Willem de Kooning used these extraordinary brushes to create an extraordinary texture. It was supposed to be this outpouring of emotion, kind of unconscious automatism drawn from the surrealists. For someone like Richter, there's gesture there. He's not afraid of a paintbrush. He's not afraid of dealing with the idea of gesture and its connotations. But by using the squeegee, I think the squeegee becomes le the, the marks become less about the body necessarily and more about time. I mean, I think what this is a really interesting painting about is it becomes about time, not an accumulation of time, but movement through time. This idea that you, there's never really it's, it's not like you're at the top of a painting and you can see it having accumulated over months and months and months. There is no really one moment of time. And, and, and I think that's what makes the, the painting so particularly compelling. And like I said, I would, I would really argue he is, he is one of the great colorists of, of the post-war generation. Um, as a curator, I think people are always interested to think about how we hang these galleries. And any of you who come to the Hirschhorn regularly have probably seen this gallery change a lot in the last year. Um, I will admit that this gallery has been... Uh, the bane of my existence for the last year or so. We recently received this extraordinary Mark Groschen painting as a gift. It's a 1912 painting, I mean, excuse me, a 2012 painting. Um, Mark Groschen is, is probably one of the most interesting painters out um, working right now. He's an LA artist. And so this was put out, this was a gift. And I thought, oh, let's put our fabulous new painting on view. And then I realized that it does not play with others. Um, it's an extraordinarily powerful painting. I mean, when we got the painting, it still smelled like oil. This gallery reeked like paint for months. It had just come from the studio. And even though it was mostly dry, um, it, wasn't totally, it wasn't totally dry. You could still smell the oil in the air. Um, it's, it's thickly encrusted. It clearly is engaging with the masks, an idea of primitivism, Picasso. And I thought to myself, OK, well, but I, I can find paintings to put with that. So the first thing I did is I brought the Richter in. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. You know, two people dealing with history in very different ways. Grochen takes it on, takes on literally the kind of forms and symbols of, of Picasso, takes on this, you know, very kind of strident way of using um, pigment, and, and you know, Richter's here with his little squeegee moving across space. But then what happened was the possibility of how you could put in other paintings. And I think this is, like I said, if anyone's been here in the last year, they've seen this gallery change. We had a Christopher Wool in here. We had an Amy Silman. We just had a lot of different things, but they never actually worked. I always felt like these two paintings were great 
anchors, but you can't put them next to each other. I can't tell you what happens when you put the Richter over there, or you put the Richter and the Brochen together. They, they play well against one another, but next to them it becomes this kind of weird, icky, red, orange mess. So finally what we've ended up with in here is um, a painting by uh, George Baselitz, another um, painter, German painter. It's uh, 1968, 69. I had to put it down in my notes. I'm sorry. Um, and, he, and then what we found is this painting actually just recently came back on loan. This is another one of the great paintings in the collection, I think. It is a portrait of Andy Warhol by um, American artist Julian Snobble from 1982. And of course it is referencing those famous portraits of Warhol after he was shot in, I think, 1968. There's the painting that Alice Neal did owned by the Whitney that probably many of you know and then also there are those fabulous photographs by Richard Avedon showing the scars of the surgery after he was um, he was shot and what I think is so magnificent is all of these paintings they are all very painterly paintings you know there's no there's no denying that they're all interested in pigment they're all interested in thinking about gesture there's no kind of you know flattening out like with the silk screen of Warhol that we've put in the core before now but what I think is also interesting about these four is that they actually look decently together in the gallery is also the fact that they're all dealing with history in very different ways. Schnabel is taking on Warhol, who's still alive when he's making these. Ultimately, he buys, he gives the painting to Warhol, and Warhol trades him several of his own works. And ultimately, this painting stayed in Warhol's collection until he died. And then you have someone like Baselitz, who's dealing with paintings of kind of German tradition, thinking about civilization, thinking about fracturing history and how history changes the way we, we view civilization now. And so what you end up having in here is four artists really dealing with history in very different ways. But I have to say my favorite part of this gallery is the moment when we put the, um, we place the schnabel next to the Richter and all of a sudden I realized that this beautiful kind of buddy pink passage in the, in the Richter is this extraordinary kind of mirroring of the Warhol. And mind you, Richter probably never wants to be like placed in the same gallery with Schnabel. And I will argue that Richter is a much better painter and a much more, a much different painter than Schnabel. But as a curator, when you have something like that happen, when you put two paintings next to each other, they just sing. It's not something you can think about art historically. It was like, okay, let's find all the 19, you know, the post-1965 paintings, what will look good, what works art historically. But I think this gallery, the kind of struggle that I've had with it has demonstrated demonstrated that art historical ideas are very different than when you put two pictures next to each other and they speak to each other or they fight each other. And it's one of the great kind of um, joys of being a curator, that moment when these two began to speak to each other. It's also one of the great frustrations when you can't get them to actually, as I always say, play well with others. Does anyone have any questions or comments? You're a quiet group. Usually the gallery talks over. Yeah, what about this period of time when he did uh, provide names for his pictures and then why things Oh, I'm sorry. Why, I'm going to repeat the question because this is probably going to be a podcast. A question about why this was titled and, and when he did. I don't know exactly. He's really elusive. And I'll be honest, I read a few monographs about Richter recently to try to wrap my head around his entire career. And the question of titles, I think titles are always problematic with artists. Artists put titles on them. Sometimes they're given by friends. Sometimes they have significance. Sometimes they purposely put no title. Sometimes it's untitled. And I think this one being named the sanctuary, for some reason, this body of 12 paintings that Richter made somehow had an association with his time in London. Um, you know, I think, I think one could say, oh, well, this kind of passage of paint might look a little foggy, and I would absolutely say that's inappropriate with Richter. That's not what his paintings are about. So I think with someone like Richter, just like he moves so freely between representation and abstraction, I think the fact that he can put titles on some paintings and no titles on other paintings might just suggest this kind of fluidity and the possibility of interpretation. I mean, one of the things that, that unifies Richter's incredibly... Um, 
diverse in body of work is this idea of thinking about perception, how we perceive the world, and how the world is mediated by photography, and, and ultimately the idea and the act of representing, and what does it mean to put paint on canvas to represent something in the outside world or not. So to, to answer your question, I think, I think there is no answer. I mean, this is called sanctuary. Why is this one called sanctuary, and another one's called St. John? You know, one's a specific place, one's a chapel, this is one. I, I think it's just Richter being Richter. He's a really, really smart painter. And you hear him talk, and it's just very clear. He's, he was raised by a mother who clearly, like, raised him on, on um, Hegelian philosophy and Nietzsche. He's, he's very versed in the classics, even though he seems very kind of anti-classicism. Uh-huh. So, speaking of his parents, when he left East Germany, he never spoke or saw them. Never saw them. Yeah. yeah. Um, the question is about right. Um, I think the, the, the question is to what the impact was to leave his family when he was less than thirty years old and to never see them again. And there's this moment again. I hate to re keep referencing this documentary, but it really kind of rocked the way I think about um, artistic uh, documentaries. There's this moment when she says, "You know, you left." She, he's looking at these photos. He's looking at Atlas, this compendium. Yeah, and he says, and, and she says, and he's looking at these pictures of his mother when he was a baby. And, and she says, and, and the documentary filmmaker says, "Did you know what happened when you left?" And he said, "I never saw them again." And she said, "You never saw them again?" He said, "No. By the time I returned, and I think it was in the late '80s, the '90s, they were all dead." And you can kind of see this emotion overcome him. I think the whole, I think his generation of artists being born in 1931, surviving the war, dealing with the Nazi era, dealing with the repression after the Nazi era, I think this incredible skepticism against authority, and the, you could even tie that to the, the, the authority of a so-called documentary photograph, I think his interest in the play between painting and photography could be tied to that. I don't, he's clearly steeped in a romantic Western tradition. Um, I think in a lot of ways you can tie this back to you know, Caspar David Friedrich, whoever it may be. And I think that you can kind of take his own time, his own contemporary time as influencing him. I don't think it's a one-to-one -one relationship. I think it's, it's complicated. But I think kind of the ideas about time and history in both the, fo in both the photorealist paintings and the abstractions could easily be linked. But it's I think it's really complicated. And you have to be careful. But I, I, I did think it was interesting to see, you know, he seemed very distant from these photographs he was looking at. Oh, that's my mother and me. That must have me be then. It was almost so detached. And then the suggestion that he never got to see her again clearly took him to a very different place that he tries to keep away from most interviews. Any other questions or comments? Uh, we're hearing a lot in the, with the Ai Weiwei exhibition about the artist's voice. And if you think about um, Richter's paintings as being um, a message from his voice, what would you would you say that his his abstract work is more interested in the process, like the message is about the process of creating it, or is it more about the visceral reaction that he gets from looking at it? I think it's both, and I think that's what makes them such interesting paintings. Ultimately, is is you look at them and you're so intrigued as to how they got to look like this. And he is using such an unusual process. On one hand, the wet on wet is a very traditional process that goes back to Renaissance painting, but the the use of the squeegee is clearly something very different and getting a very different effect. I, I, I think it's about, I think it's a challenge against beauty. I think it's this kind of question is, can, is it okay to make a beautiful painting these days and is that okay? That's something I thought about a lot. I mean, this is just an absolutely glorious painting in my opinion. Um, 
Richter, I think, in terms of the artist's voice, he's one of the most prolific writers, and he's written a lot, and there's like a 1960s documentary when he's very young, standing in front of these paintings. He's so young, and he still has no paint on his um, smock. It's very, very bourgeois. I watched this whole thing, I was like, oh, how bourgeois, um, which is not a bad thing. I'm all for it. But, um, he's, it, but it's always this kind of ellipse or this kind of gap between what he says and what the paintings do, and he never, there's never really kind of this one-to-one connection. I think part of what Richter's trying to do, again, is kind of talk about the impossibility of talking about these paintings. He's making paintings, I forgot to bring this quote out, um, I actually should bring it out now. He is a big fan of John Cage, which I find to be so ironic. For someone who's such a painter's painter to be interested in John Cage, such, you know, a radical kind of performance artist for the most part, but, you know, the idea of chance clearly intrigues him, but the quote that he always, he brings it out over and over again by John Cage is he says, I have nothing to say and I'm saying it. So on some level it's about letting the paintings speak from themselves and not attaching one particular meaning to them for the most part. Were you here when they had the Richter exhibit no, uh, like eight or nine years ago? He's asking about the Richter exhibit. Um, that was a really, really great exhibit. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary show. It was the 2002 show that was, we've had two shows, I think, in our history. It was curated by Rob Storr at MoMA, and it was this extraordinary retrospective. Um, I was not here, but I saw it in MoMA, actually, in New York, but I thought, oh, go ahead. No, I was glad you mentioned the documentary and, like, the technique and stuff, because I remember the, the first thing you noticed when you uh, came up the escalator to that exhibit was one of these photorealist things, and it was it was a, a woman. I think it might have been Jacqueline Kennedy or some, somebody. And I mean, and I, mean, I didn't know anything about him before then, so you thought it was like an out of focus photograph right. you know, they made into a poster. And then you know you see it's a painting, and you, well, how did he do that? You right. know, and, and why would he do that? I mean, one of the things that Richter became really known for, and I forgot to mention this, is making these extremely photorealist paintings and then smearing them almost to the point of obliteration. So he spends all this time making an extraordinarily crafted painting and then smears it, and you know, which is much about kind of the impossibility of representing the world out there and kind of perception. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that, those are some of the, the greatest paintings. And one of the great paintings he did is a woman, a nude, descending the staircase, um, which is this beautifully painted nude descending the staircase. It's classical. It's beautiful. It's just like this beautifully crafted image. I mean, he's got an incredible... We don't talk about this anymore. We don't talk about virtuosity, but I think with Richter, you can talk about virtuosity, and it isn't necessarily a negative thing. But um, but he's doing New Descending a Staircase, which is, of course, Duchamp's great painting that he made in 1913 that kind of set off kind of the beginning of modern art, especially in America. So for him to take that on and then paint it photorealistically, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary about his engagement with history and, and kind of thinking about what these paintings can do. Anything else? I was interested to hear your discussion about the way the painting is made, because as I look at it, um, in some ways, sort of like Pollock would fill the entire canvas, right. so wherever you are on the canvas, you're sort of in a seamlessness of it. Right. it. It seems to have the same kind of feel. Right, it's called an all-over composition, and Pollock absolutely was the one who um, really kind of pioneered that, the idea that there should be no punctum, per se, there should be no subject, there's not one thing you're focusing on. The composition is, and one of the effects of that is the idea that it's spilling off of the canvas, it makes the canvas look more monumental, the idea is that it goes on forever. Um, yeah, this is absolutely engaging that. And I think that Richter's very aware of abstract expressionism and not afraid of it. And that's what I love. It's not like all of these artists for the longest time in the 60s, minimalism, performance art, conceptual art, fluxus, was this kind of radical reaction against abstract expressionism. And they had to move away from it as far as they could. And with Richter, he's not afraid of history. He's not afraid of beauty. He's not afraid of virtuosity. But he 
creates these incredibly con conceptual paintings. They are as conceptual as they are crafted or technically well done. And I think that's one of the things that, again, makes them so compelling. I mean, I was saying to um, someone in our department today, having read about him and looked at this painting, I drank the Kool-Aid. I've always been a fan of Richter, but spending a lot of time thinking about this painting, really, I was like, okay, there's no doubt in my mind, he's really one of the great painters. And he will go, he will go down in history in ways that I think many other artists won't. I think that you make good decisions about these other pieces because they're good counterpoint. Right. You know, sort of on that piece, because these are very starkly different than that. Right, and they're all dealing with history, but they're all very different painters. And frankly, Schnabel and Richter, like I said, would probably never want to be in the same room. And Baselitz and Richter, of course, are the same generation, but they're doing totally different things. And again, Richter is not real friendly with the Neo Geo group of, of painters. And then Grotens is a very younger artist. He's like in his 40s right now, and he's grappling with some of the same issues. And it's interesting to see how they're all doing it. But again, I mean, one of the, one of the great struggles as a curator, as someone once told me, was knowing what goes in the catalog and what actually goes in the gallery. Because things that sound like a great idea when you get in the gallery with them, it's a horrible idea. You know, it's, theoretically, art historically, wow, that's going to be a great kind of, um, I'm going to make this incredible point using these four paintings you put them in the gallery and you're like, okay, this is not going to work. But instead you have this kind of moment where the Schnabel you know, body of Andy Warhol is reflected almost in the, in the, in the uh, Richter. And that's, this is why I do what I do. I'll be really honest. Anything else? Quiet group. Well, thank you very much. I hope you'll keep coming back. Thank you. That's very helpful. Good.